Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. Today, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Christina Hoff-Summers. Christina is an author and academic who was professor of philosophy at Clark University and is currently resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research in Washington. She hosts a video blog called The Factual Feminist, which is really great. You should all check that out. And her books include Who Stole Feminism? Vice and Virtue in Everyday Life, and uh, this one which I have here, The War Against Boys. Christina, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. I hear you're quite a, a dangerous, radical individual. Um, I know this because apparently when you spoke at Oberlin College, um, 35 students had to retreat to a safe room with a dog. So you also upset a dog. Is that correct? It is. I triggered a dog. I felt <laughs> bad. <laughs> 35 students set up a safe room where they could flee if I said something distressing. And um, it didn't take long before they fled. It was absurd, but it was, this was a, a few years back, mm. but it, it was my first taste of the new culture on campus and stipulate, I've been lecturing on campuses for many years. And I, as a moderate feminist, I have tangled with radical feminists over and over again. We debated, we disagreed. Sometimes we, it was unpleasant, but often it was civil and friendly. We'd, had, we'd have drinks. Yeah. Uh, no one invited me. Well, actually I was invited for drinks at Oberlin uh, by the students who invited me, which was a, a group of libertarian kids, but I had to have a police escort. I mean, that's incredible. And yet that seems to have become quite the norm today for certain speakers on certain campuses. Um, I, I presume when this happened, it wasn't the norm at that point. Well, it was just starting mm -hmm. and then uh, escalating. And by the time, a couple of years later, I spoke at a law school in Portland, Lewis and Clark University, the law school. And I wasn't allowed to give my talk. Students came and started chanting and banging uh, instruments. I don't know, they were carrying on. And it, it was a mostly liberal crowd stipulate. Yes. But, but the radicals didn't want the liberal kids to hear what I had to say. And the liberal kids weren't particularly happy about that. But imagine a law school inhibiting discussion. Now, I can see there'd be some speakers if you brought in a notorious figure uh, from, you know, the Nazi party or something, then it's understandable people would protest. But what people should know is I am a, a moderate feminist well within the Overton window on most of the, <laughs> my views. Uh, even a, a registered Democrat, I'm self-loathing Democrat, but I, I can't <laughs> quite bring myself to become a Republican. So, but even my views, which are mainstream, which reflect, I think the views of maybe the majority of women in the United States, perhaps on the planet, um, they were ruled out of order. And I was, I was compared to uh, you know, just infamous figures in yes. history. Is that, but so. is, that, is it more the case that they don't know what your views actually are and that they're kind of going on this, uh, this caricature that has been created in the popular imagination? Could it be that? Yeah, I think that was definitely true in Portland. What worries me more about Oberlin is that the, the, the professors sort of led this charge. Oh, right. One of them accused me of committing an act of discursive violence. 
What does that mean? That what does it mean, an act of discursive violence? <laughs> I <laughs> guess, you know, uh, some kind of uh, um, a, a crime against humanity through my language. Through your dangerous my, words, my, your my, violent words. My, words, my yeah. thoughts. Daring to suggest that the war against women has been exaggerated. Daring to suggest that a lot of the statistics that have achieved a kind of permanence out there um, are unfounded. So what one of the things I do in The Factual Feminist, and I've done throughout my uh, career as a, an academic philosopher and then as a, a scholar in a think tank, is look at the empirical mm -hmm. foundation of these various theories in feminism. And I think that classical liberal feminism, the kind of feminism that one women basic rights to vote and to get divorced or to, you know, not to be harassed. And so those grew out of the, the classical liberal tradition. It worked. But that is not the philosophy adopted by, I would say, most of my uh, colleagues in feminist philosophy. They're the dominant view, and they carry this into their classrooms and into it's in the gender studies programs, is a much more radical view of women's place in the world and uh, is kind of a hopeless patriarchal oppressive system where there's a constant war waged on women through you know cheating them out of their salaries battering beating murdering and where's the data i can't find support so anyway that's considered uh, a kind of a modern heresy but this is something that statistics. that you do so well, I think, particularly in, in the videos I've seen, the factual feminist videos, is that you look very carefully at the data. You don't just take on trust the assertions that are being made by by, by some feminists. And, and also this serves the cause of feminism well, because if, if the data is, is demonstrably wrong, uh, then that makes the point less valid and that makes it less persuasive. So you would have thought that if people are propagating false information, they would want to be corrected about that. That was my assumption. And way back when I started um, dissenting in the American Philosophical Association, I would go to conferences and tangle with the feminist philosophers. I thought, well, they're, they've simply made a mistake. I'll point it out. All will be well. We will move on. Well, uh, all was not well. We did not move on. The, it's a sacred catechism, and they will not give it up. And the idea that the average woman, you know, faced the risk of being brutally beaten by her husband, the average woman it, it, or college girl has a loss of self-esteem and is likely, you know, vulnerable to all these ills. I mean, some young women are vulnerable to all sorts of things. But when I look at the data, I look at so young men in American society or British society, young women, and it's true, there are some privileges that men enjoy, but there are many privileges that women enjoy and that men don't have. It's a mix, a combination mix of, of burdens and benefits. It's, it's, you know, just, it's hard to say who's better off by yes. fundamental metrics of who goes to college and who lives the longest. And, you know, it, it, what you find is that uh, women uh, have a distinct advantage. Men do earn more, but when you look into that statistic, is it because of discrimination? Well, sometimes, but just as often, it turns out to be that uh, women choose different professions and they have a slightly different relationship with the workplace. Women who have kids tend to retreat 
somewhat or altogether, and they say they want it that way. It's not simply they're forced to. We have lots of data that show that when women have, especially young children, they prefer to be with them, and they evince this preference far more strongly than men. So that kind of explains the wage gap. Now, I know there are more questions about it. I'm willing to entertain the fact that maybe women have those preferences because of societal forces and so forth. It's kind of, it, but, but people don't, that's not what we're debating, hmm. that philosophical issue about whether or not women have free will. I mean, I don't think we're going to resolve that too quickly. Uh, but that's not, we have bills in Congress and we have a whole movement predicated on the assumption that it's employers, unprincipled employers cheating women out of their rightful salary. And there's just, I mean, if that were true, you know, and you could get away with it, what business wouldn't just fire all the men and have only women? You'd have immediately, uh, you know, about a 25% advantage over your competitors. Yeah, you'd save a lot of money if, if you didn't have to pay women as much. You would save an awful lot of money as an employer if you only hired exactly. women. Exactly. You just don't need to fire all the men. And yeah. you have this, you know, this great source of talent, equal in every way. With this. Well, uh, men and women are equal, but they do not have, they're not a, alike on yeah. average. They're, I mean, they're overall, you see them gravitate towards different fields. And what's interesting is, is a large body of research that shows that the freer and more and wealthier a society, just the higher levels of, of you know, human development, um, men and women are less likely to go into the same professions. So a, a, a young woman in, let's say, Mexico or Malaysia uh, is more likely to go into engineering than a young woman in, in Paris or, or, or Copenhagen or New York. Yes. Now, why would that be? And the, the, the psychologists think that in a, in a freer and more prosperous society, people have more opportunities for self-realization. They can just do what they really want to do. And that's, you, you know, if a woman wants to major in something, you know, let's uh, uh, art history, which isn't terribly practical, uh, and maybe you can't afford to do that unless you're super rich in Mexico, a, a lot of women can do that. And we find that many of the majors in the, in the liberal arts, in the humanities are overwhelmingly women. So you're not you're not averse to having the conversation about why it is that women tend to choose certain career paths and why men tend to choose different ones. Uh, but what you're saying is that everything that all these uh, theories that are propagated need to be scrutinized in terms of of the, of the facts. And I suppose in a sense you're saying let's not accept this simple narrative that of women are always victims and men are always uh, oppressors. And and I think the point you make about the gender pay gap is a very good one because the way that is reported in the media over here in the UK is often very reductive, very simplistic. So we hear headlines like women earn 76 pence for every pound a man earns. There was actually a survey by Sky News over here that found that seven in 10 people believe that women are paid less than men for the same work, even though that's been illegal since 1970. So, you know, why is it that, that so many people are accepting the, 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 the mythology that's put out there, even when it clearly isn't true. It's interesting. People are overall research suggests that they're more sympathetic to women. And we have a lot of data you can show um, in the psychological research, you can show something unpleasant happening to a man or unpleasant happening to a woman. And people react you know, much more strongly to unpleasantness to women. And you know, there may be something adaptive about that in a mm. civilized society. People re recoil at what they view as 
bullying or, or a stronger person preying on the weaker. So this may, this probably is based on something good in us, a kind of protectiveness yeah. towards the vulnerable. But I think uh, maybe my colleagues in feminist philosophy, unwittingly or not, have sort of weaponized that sympathy that people have for women. And it's got to the point where where people will believe anything. I mean, a, a couple of years ago, and I made a factual feminist about this, Reuters reported, the news service, well, it was, their, it was their research foundation did some kind of study about the worst places in the world for women. Mm -hmm. And they concluded that the most dangerous, frightening places for women, the top 10 countries, uh, the United States was on the list. Really? North Korea didn't make it. I don't know, I think Iran was there. Oh, they have a ball out there. The women have a ball out in Iran. It's not, not an issue. That's astonishing. What was their justification for that? Well, I tried to find out. I wrote to the researchers and, and you know, and now ever since the, the, the Trump came to office, Reuters prides itself on pursuing truth. And, you know, they're the staunch uh, soldiers for veracity and they, they have these slogans. Anyway, uh, this was completely absurd. What did they do? Well, apparently their this study was based on questions they asked to 500 professionals mm. out there, unnamed professionals who had to remain anonymous so they would be honest. That's what they said. So they just asked like 500 random women, I guess, who worked in, in gender activist organizations to list the worst countries. Yeah. And now when you ask people to make lists off the top of their head, what you're really getting is just what they happen to remember. Yes, I mean, exactly. It's kind of hard to just, you know, 10 countries. So then they think, okay, the United, somehow the United States got there. It was an absurd methodology. They would never admit it. And then the newspapers reported it uncritically. But that's and people still cite it. That's quite revealing in of itself that, that, that when people were asked where they thought the most oppressive place for women is, that, that you, the United States springs to mind. I mean, even that would tell us something. I mean, is there something going on here uh, where, where there is a kind of vested interest for certain people for um, the lot of women to be very, very poor? Like, for instance, I mean, the, one of the things that you've addressed a number of times are the statistics about sexual assault. And I remember Obama talking about how one in five women on, on campus will be sexually raped or sexually assaulted. I remember the statistics sometimes being quoted as one in three. And, and as you, you very successfully explained, uh, the figure is much more, much higher than that. So whose interest is this in, really? Again, it's, it's complicated, but I do think there is a little, there's a, a, an industry, a little cottage industry of, of organizations whose well-being depends on uh, there being uh, a crisis. And of course, right. it, it, I must say women's activist groups are by far uh, not alone. Most activist groups across the political spectrum will, will take the problem they address. And in an effort to raise awareness, they will embrace eye-catching statistics. Uh, these are known mm -hmm. as killer stats. Um, but the problem is that women aren't helped by, by falsehoods. Women aren't gonna, it, what, how are you gonna help women if you're not getting a realistic uh, uh, understanding of what's going on? If it were the case that one in yeah. three women are sexually assaulted on campus, it would be the most terrifying 
awful place to go. And I, I don't see how women are empowered by being frightened out of their wits. I mean, obviously, um, any sexual assault encompasses too much is wrong. And you've made that point very, very clearly that, that, that we're, no one's saying uh, that we're ignoring or overlooking the seriousness of that. But to exaggerate the extent, that strikes me as not empowering women, but doing the precise opposite. Exactly. It doesn't empower women. It's frightening to them. And think about it. If, if the numbers were anywhere near what they say, it would mean that the American liberal arts campus, uh, uh, arguably the safe, one of the safest places on the planet mm -hmm. for anybody, um, they, they are comparing it and saying it's in a way worse than, say, war-torn Congo, mm. you know, that the women's chances of escaping assault. Uh, but they but they do. They do something called advocacy research. That's research not with the intention of finding the truth, but research to prove a, a preordained truth. So they've worked out a way where they can ask sort of vaguely worded questions to a non-representative sample of women. And they can it, very often these are uh, done via computer. So people self-select into them, which. Mm -hmm already will give you a biased sample because the people who care most about it one way or the other will or tend to select into it. So uh, much of our research, much of what we know, we think we know right now about uh, women in violence is unreliable. And this is so, so people think, well, you don't care about the problem because you're questioning this research. It's, I think it's just the opposite. If you care about the problem, you should be incensed that people have distorted it. We have a distorted vision of what's going on with women in our society. And minimally, you're going, you have to know who is at risk. You have to know who you have to help and, and what will work. And by exaggerating it and pretending that there's an all out war on women, it's an oppressive patriarchy and the men hold their power by threatening violence. You know what? There are women, there are many, women's studies professors who believe that and they teach it to their students and they depend on this research and these statistics. And I, I mean, I don't think they're doing it cynically. I think they believe it. So well, it's not going to ask to what extent is this just a lack of rigor in the methodology or is it, or, or, or confirmation bias or something like that? I mean, are they being honest? <laughs> you know, I was going to ask, but you know, clearly you think they are being honest that it is well-intentioned. Yeah, I haven't found, I mean, I, I, I think people are complicated and it's very rare you'll find someone that just says, ha, ah, I'm going to lie about this. Yeah. They, they're true believers. And it, it makes it very difficult because I think when you go to question these things, you're viewed more as a heretic and they, they just are, they shut down. Yeah. Now, uh, I, so I do think they are, uh, guilty of confirmation bias but the question arises maybe I am and I asked myself this and many years ago I really did not want to become known as the critic of feminism it was very upsetting to my mother who was very very feminist very left-wing and my sister was nervous and uh it, and my I lost some friends it just would have been easier to go along and I really tried I tried to raise my consciousness and see what Catherine McKinnon, this radical feminist, was telling us was going on in, in the you know, heteropatriarchal capitalist oppressive system. And I just couldn't see it. 
every time they would make a claim, I would think, okay, well, uh, so there are you know, vast numbers of women. For example, when I was writing my book, Who Stole Feminism? The claim was everywhere that is in the United States, 150,000 girls were dying every year of anorexia, this mm. eating disorder where they just waste away. And one celebrated feminist said that it was a disease caused not by nature, but by men. So the idea was that men, by these impulse standards of beauty they were holding us up to, were killing us. Well, the statistic was just a mistake. Some professor, Joan Jacob Brumberg at, Columb uh, at Cornell had misread a brochure, which gave the number, total number, I don't know, of, of people who had e eating disorders. Somehow she took that for deaths every year. Oh, <laughs> anyway, right. That's, that, that's, three that's times quite a serious year. error there. <laughs> you know, that's, that's it was not, a serious error. not it trivial. It was repeated for years. It was in women's studies textbooks. So people have had this steady diet of these um, atrocity statistics yes. that paint a very grim picture. And you have young women. And I, I think I could have been one of them. I mean, fortunately, when I started college, I majored in philosophy and I had these sort of tough-minded analytic philosophers who, who insisted on thinking rigorously. But I think if, if I'd had a course with a professor I respected and she told me, one in three, you know, will be battered. One in four raped. One hundred fifty thousand, and painted this picture. Why would I doubt it? And then it was in the textbooks. It's in the newspaper. It's a. We've created this, this, village, <laughs> this world, and young women. Now most, I don't know what happens. They take these courses and then move on. Yes. But many don't. Many are get the bug, and they get they lose their sense of humor because they become very bitter about how bad things are for women. And they become crusaders. They become soldiers in this army of gender warriors. And now, the, and, and, and it's most pronounced in our elite colleges. Yes. So they go from their gender studies major at Wesleyan or, you know, at, at Berkeley or Santa Cruz, they go from that to a position of, uh, you know, as a journalist, or yeah. they go into the um, into the nonprofit world, and we've had now a few decades of this. Yes. So, and we're paying a price. And it's interesting to me how this kind of very speculative theories about uh, girls and boys and and feminism become uh, the the basis for policy. I mean, you you spend a lot of time in your book. The War Against Boys talking about Carol Gilligan and the work that she did in the 80s and she was promoting ideas but but that her books from that time are no longer recognized and and you even say that you were trying to find the basis of her research and it wasn't there it didn't it just didn't exist so it was all built on nothing and yet it became hugely she made these elaborate claims about you know the sort of the male way of thinking about morality she thought that had been that had sort of had become the norm mm. and that women's ways of knowing and caring. And, and I, I entertained the possibility there are differences in men and women uh, in many areas, but I was aware of the literature and moral psychology and no one had really been able to find a clear difference between men and women when it became to ethical behavior or even yeah. ethical thinking. If you look at students' response to you tell them a, some kind of moral quandary. 
uh, and then you look at the responses, people haven't been able to show, oh, well, that's, that's obviously a man, that's obviously a woman. I found that in my philosophy classes. I would present some kind of philosophical quandary, a moral quandary, and there'd be some, you know, little small statured dainty young woman who would just say, you know, give some kind of uh, macho <laughs> solution. And then some tough guy would, you know, I could not predict how students based on their sex would respond to moral ideas. But Carol Gilligan was a revered figure and she just built this, I mean, entire world around her research, which nobody could find. It became, a, I mean, a many, many, there was a reason she was in, in the education department at Harvard and not the psychology department. Yes. Because there, there was no there there. But it was, a, it was a narrative that captured the imagination. It was a way of thinking that men and women are different, which people sort of know. But more than that, it was a way of thinking women were superior. Well, that, I mean, it's, so it very, it's very interesting because, I mean, I've, I've just got the quote here that she, she made the claim that boys aged three to seven are pressured to take into themselves the structure or moral order of a patriarchal civilization to internalize a patriarchal voice. So the, she's talking about this masculine, masculinization process, but it's entirely, it's, it's not grounded in data. It's almost like she's just said it. And then because she said it, yeah. people are going to- <laughs> She just said it. And it becomes <laughs> true. It becomes gospel, you know? And then you're the bad guy for saying, actually, this is wrong. <laughs> And, it, and I even, what does that even mean? And, and, it, and it also, she, she did that after. She had all this credibility because of her groundbreaking research that is missing. Then she went on to speculate about boys. Yeah. And boys paid a price. Not, I don't want to blame her because it was all part of a, this movement. But we know that certainly throughout uh Britain and the United States, boys are languishing. Boys are the have-nots in education. And our classrooms increasingly are friendlier for girls. We do a better job educating girls than boys. It's, it's sort of a lost art in yeah. the United States, like how to reach uh, a, you know, a boy who's just less interested in being in the classroom than a girl. From day one, boys find it much harder to, and they, and they develop at a later age. So a five-year-old boy is a less mature being than, than the girl sitting next to him on, on average. So boys are suspended far more, punished more, and even their imaginations, uh, the teachers don't like it. Because if you, if, if you, we have this research, you ask kids to, to write a story. And that's one of the things that interests kids in writing and reading in school. And the, liter the research that I've seen on how much disapproval boys get, because they might want to write about a monster destroying a city, you know, or one little boy, I remember when I was writing, uh, I guess it was 2013, I did the second edition of the, of the War Against Boys, and I read about a little boy in California named Justin, at, I forget how old he was, seven or eight, and his parents were called in for a conference, the teacher, the counselors they were very worried about Justin now he was a very well-behaved little boy there had been no signs of anything you know bad behavior but his drawings had pirates and decapitated heads and people walking the plank and his father said he loves pirates he reads all these stories and and I'll never forget the father just said how can a teacher has who has so little 
sympathy with my son's imagination. How, how is she going to teach him anything? Yeah, that's a good question. For I mean, very, all of our schools, because while, whilst we could exactly, you know, people have a tendency sometimes to exaggerate the difference differences between men and women. It's undeniably the case, and research shows, as you've pointed out in your book, that young children, boys and girls, they play differently. They have different interests, and I think at the core of what you're arguing in in the in the book very much is that um, there's a kind of movement to re-socialize boys as though they were girls, almost to suggest right. that. Things like rough and tumble play and the kind of things that boys generally, and of course these are always generalizations, but generally uh, in, enjoy and get more out of than, than girls, that that in, in a sense is a kind of precursor to violence. Like that they, They're kind of proto-criminals and it's an early sign of what we now call toxic masculinity. And that needs to be ironed out by treating boys like they're girls. And yet, as you say, all the, we've had many decades now of people trying to do that. It doesn't seem to have yielded results. It doesn't yield results. And if you talk to any any expert on you know sort of things like ch children's playground dynamics behavior, there's a, a researcher at the University of Minnesota, Anthony Pellegrini, and he has observed that rough and tumble play, sort of mock fighting and chasing and sound effects, bam boom, all kids do it, but boys do it like all the time. Yeah. Uh, the typical play of the girls will do it, but not nearly as much on average, as you say, we're, there are exceptions. We're talking about the rules. Boys do it. Uh, girls, there's a lot of imaginative theatrical play, playing school, playing house, uh, turn-taking games, or especially going in a corner with a best friend and exchanging confidences. You just don't find many boys doing that. And the girls get bored with the rough and tumble play. But yeah. Parents, teachers like the way the girls play. It's calmer, more reassuring, less. It, but what Anthony Pellegrini and others found is the boys, when they are rough and tumbling, it is not a precursor to violence, quite the opposite. Boys who are good at it, well, first of all, they make a distinction. In violence, kids are angry, uh, they part enemies, there's tears. There's, in rough and tumble play, it's the exact opposite. They're mm. exuberant, they're happy, they, they're forging friendships, it's a critical part of healthy male development. And not even in, in, even in other species. I mean, you go, you can see this in other primates, the, the way the males play, it's different from the way the females play. And both are important to the well-being. And I welcome a society that if, if a kid defies the stereotypes and the girl wants to play like the boys, then we want to encourage that and tolerance, fine. But the kids, mainly will not go along with their parents' efforts to to get the mainly they want the boys to be more like the girls. Yes. And the boys aren't cooperating. They try to get them to play with dolls and they will end up using, you know, playing catch with the dollars. I mean they don't play as you know well, they're required. You you mention in your book, I might I might just quickly read this this anecdote from from your book when you say when my son David was a high school senior in 2003, his graduating class went on a camping trip in the desert. A creative writing educator visited the camp and led the group through an exercise designed to develop their sensitivity and imaginations. Each student was given a pen, a notebook, a candle and matches. They were told to walk a short distance in the desert, sit down alone and discover themselves. The girls followed instructions. The boys, baffled by the assignment, gathered together, threw the notebooks into a pile, lit them with the matches and made a little bonfire. 
And as you say, the teacher here would, was horrified by this behavior because it does sound a bit like Lord of the Flies. It does sound like, yeah. oh my God, the, the, you know, these boys are going to end up. So would it not be better that the boys learned how to play like the girls? Would that not help them, I suppose? That would be the theory. Well, in this case, these were all well-behaved boys and they were good students. They were, there was no proto-toxic masculinity in this group. <laughs> they, telling boys, discover yourself. I mean, come on. It's so, it's, it's too much. This is a teacher that had, I mean, that was, that, I mean, I, I don't even know if I would have liked that assignment, but and, you know, I think yeah. a lot of people would be put off, but it was a horrible thing to do. It, it, she could have asked them to do something else. It, to me, I understand it. Oh, it was a camp. If it was school, they were disobeying. It's one thing. This was a camp. It yeah. was supposed to be fun. And they were having fun. Like, it is fun to make a bonfire. It is fun. That kind of, it's not actually yeah. destruction, is it? It's, it's play. It's, it's something else. Yeah. I, I just thought, I mean, I tell the story because I, I just thought it was funny and so typical. And well, uh, we're dealing with generalizations. I mean, I think when I, when I was a boy, I wasn't like the rough and tumble other boy. I didn't like football and all that kind of stuff. So, so there's always exceptions to these things. But generally speaking, uh, there, there are observable differences in the way that boys and girls uh, react to each other. And I noticed, I mean, your first edition of that book was what, 2000, and 2000. Then, then the second edition, 2013. Now it's 2021 and it doesn't feel like anything's changed. It feels like you might need another <laughs> version of the book because I, I think of the Gillette uh, toxic masculinity advert, which you may have seen, where you know, they depict boys playing and sort of play fighting and uh, and the advert suggests that you should intervene because the you know the idea of boys will be boys is actually quite a damaging thing. Um, what do you make of this 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 toxic masculinity narrative that has that seemingly just uh, exploded and is now taken as just being uh, an article of faith? It's just true. People just treat it as though it's true, but it's as far as I can see, uh, unclear and unproven. Unclear, uh, un unproven, and just think of this: so many little boys just exist in this environment of disapproval. Mm. It's a terrible thing to do. I mean, it's one thing if a man encounters somebody with some twisted theories about masculinity, but what if you're a little boy and it's your mom or your teacher, you know, somebody who has power over you. Mm. Um, and I don't think we have examined the, just the uh, mistreatment uh, and psychological damage we do to boys because we, we're, we're addicted to this, these, I'm sorry to say, sort of fake numbers about how bad things are for women. We vastly exaggerate women's vulnerabilities and we completely deny or overlook those of men and, and little boys, including their health. I mean, I was surprised to find in the United States, obesity is more common among young men than women. Mm -hmm. I don't know, that was when I wrote the book, maybe it's changed, but at the time there were more boys. I was surprised to see that it, in, in the United States, almost any, you know, like alcoholism and drug addiction and bad, you know, violent death. I mean, it's far more males than females that we need to pay attention. And yeah. not just to the, to the bad things that can happen to boys, but also the goodness that boys do and the, 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 the positive masculinity, that is far more common. And, and yeah. psychologists have, or sociologists once made a distinction. There is something called pathological masculinity, I guess, or what did they call it? Uh, Hypermasculinity, where you prove your manhood by destroying things and preying on weaker people mm. 
and just being a, a malicious. Um, that is not normal masculinity. Normal masculinity, a normative masculinity is the opposite. You don't, men, men who have positive masculinity, they don't destroy, they build. They don't prey on weak people, they protect. That's interesting. And I, I would say that's far more common uh, in the majority of men. Yeah. And then, you know, there are brutes, there are vicious, you know, criminals and bullies and so forth. But women aren't perfect either. So well, if we are going to talk about toxic masculinity, women aren't angels. There's toxic femininity. It's, it works, it's different. What you say about, because a lot of people do assume that those uh, negative traits that you just described, the urge to destroy, the, the, the urge to get into conflict for its own sake, that those are reflective of almost true masculinity. Uh, whereas what you're saying is that's the aberration. Is that's that the aberration. Right. And we recognize it in every, I mean, every, well, it used to be every movie. <laughs> yeah. You knew who the villain was and the good guy. And yeah. if you think of, and I, I, on campuses, when I lecture, I'll ask students, you know, they're telling me, or maybe it'd be a, a fellow a feminist will be telling me stories about bad men. And I said, okay, I know there are troglodytes out there, but what about the good men? Have there been some good men in your life who didn't, you know, insult you about not being good enough, but actually encouraged you? Are there men that help? And then most women will, if they tell the truth, they can point to many men in their lives that were the opposite of sexist, yeah. that were, were believed in them and helped them. And I mean, I had a father like that and a brother and a husband. And I, I don't, I know, and, and there were some men who were not like they were, that were not great because people are various. Men are human and women are human. And I, I just don't want, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that one sex women is superior to the other men. It's just, there's a mix. There are angels and devils in, in, in both sexes. And, and, probably and in every individual. Men, although men are, men are more violent. Uh, yeah. So they wreak more havoc, but women do enormous damage because they are, tend to be more verbally adept and you know, emo, appears greater emotional intelligence. So if they want to turn that as a weapon, they can do enormous harm. But uh, through relational aggression. So are you saying that a lot of sort of current feminist discourse has a, just a very pessimistic view of, of men? I mean, I, I, I was very surprised. I was on a panel in Stockholm uh, and uh, one of the other panelists was talking about how she was living in a, a rape culture. And I thought, well, to me, a rape culture would suggest that rape is normalized and uh, encouraged and sanctioned by the state. And whereas actually... I, I don't know a single man who doesn't think that rape is utterly abhorrent and evil. And, you know, that the norm is to, to, to stand up against it, not to embrace it. And yet the, the, this pessimistic worldview that says we live in a rape culture because rape occurs. Um, and I mean, that I mean rapists as... are despised. They're, 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 I mean, they're, they're, they're like, viewed like murderers and child molesters. I mean, yeah. uh, there's enormous and for good reason, opprobrium. For, I mean, it's just, ridiculous to say that we support it however what they I think what they're really talking about when they say rape culture is they, they would argue that because I've come to learn this on the campus and through mm -hmm. recent readings that the entire approach you know a man's approach to a woman the, uh, the idea that he has to seduce her that she's unwilling and he's that this whole approach is um 
was created by patriarchy and that right. that leads to the rapes and things. Uh, and there, there's where I, I part company because I, I think, I think this comes down from thinkers like Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin from the seventies and eighties, where they really thought that any sexual encounter between a man and a woman, because it had been shaped by our society is yeah. just rife with, uh, sort of, uh, rapist uh, qualities, I mean, rape-like qualities, so that a woman could never truly, or rarely can truly consent. And I, I, I was once in a debate, um, oh, that was a terrible thing, with Roxanne Gay in Australia. It didn't go well, right. uh, because she wouldn't even look at me and called me a, wow. she called me a white, white supremacist or something like that. I'm not sure where that came from. But anyway, uh, someone in the audience said that she didn't like me questioning the statistics or something because she was a victim of rape. And I, I felt bad that anybody, I mean, my God, but, mm -hmm. the, it, but then um, somehow she went on and said, yes, she had been, you know, she was still suffering. She'd been with her boyfriend and he was depressed and he sort of talked her into sex and she really didn't want to, but to make him feel good, she had sex. That was her rape that her boyfriend had talked her into sex. And so seduction. Oh yeah, or like a lot of married sex. <laughs> no, <laughs> not really, but <laughs> one person is more in the mood. Um, yeah, it, no, if it, it, it sounds weird, but just ask uh, the college students. They, they seem to think that it, that's coercion um, and that coercion of that kind is rape. Now, I think they're just confusing so many things there. I think they're what? taking a complicated human human dynamic that cannot be policed, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and and that the language taken from crim you know, criminals and uh, and monsters and bring that into a complicated thing. Now, of course, there can be coercion, and there mm -hmm. can be, but just to take something like that, and and but this young woman is walking around thinking of herself as a rape victim. It's like we would take cancer. Yeah. And redefine it to include, you know, if you have a rash or if you have a cold, it's all cancer. It's can't. So what? So you're first of all, that, what the hell? <laughs> are you saying there's a kind of concept creep there, therefore, where whereby uh, you know a, a violent sexual assault is conflated with a regrettable sexual experience? I suppose. Exactly. Any and, regrettable, and, and the other one is any 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 sexual encounter that involves alcohol. Okay. Um, who and two people are drunk, and that doesn't mean. I mean, of course, if someone's passed out, and you have sex with them. That's certainly a violation oh. and, and a a rape. But what if somebody has just had a couple of margaritas, and you've had a couple of margaritas? Well, which defines a lot of sex, by the way. Uh, so, well, vast yes, exactly. amount that's of of seemingly uh, enjoyable sex. I know people who would never have had sex if they didn't get drunk. You know, that's just sort of part part of it. Well, yeah, it's it it because it lowers inhibitions. Yeah, yeah. So, do you think that a lot of this concept creep that you're describing, um, which is regrettable, because because feeling as though you are a victim of something much worse than you've actually experienced is not good for you psychologically. Um, do you think this has come about because of the Me Too movement? Do you think that has made a difference? No, no, it comes, it, it's long before that. Mm -hmm. it, it's. Um, I mean, maybe it's a, it's a very old idea. I mean, there was a, a 
all sorts of ways. And I, I guess I call this a sort of fainting couch feminism, a style of feminism where it views women as sort of helpless maidens on it who faint at the first hint of male forwardness or, <laughs> or you know, in the presence of a risque joke, they faint and so forth. And it's like we're raising a generation of young women who are suddenly mortified and feel violated to their core because maybe, you know, they have some regret uh, yeah. or it didn't go the way they wanted or they're disappointed. And um, I mean, we had kind of had a feminist revolution so women could be viewed as equal to men. But I think in many quarters, we're reverting to uh, an old fashioned protectivism where women are put upon by men would and you must accept, be protected. Would you accept though, that there is an argument that, you know, because for so long, for instance, women who, who, who had been sexually assaulted, who went to the police, often just were not believed. And that therefore, there's something to be celebrated in the fact that more, more people are, you know, coming forward about these things. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that's why I think it's a godsend that they, they and I thank the feminist movement because they, they led the charge on this to have, um, for example, in police departments, experts on sexual assault to have rape kits and to just make it more easier and more possible uh, for women to report these crimes. And I also think that the Me Too movement initially, and, and it's a little bit continues, had, it was necessary. We needed to bring the workplace, even the relations between men and women in general, they had to be brought up to 21st century standards. Yeah. And apparently we found there was just, there's a lot looking, even the way we hear today, like uh, Governor Cuomo was apparently carrying on. I mean, you just hear that. And I, I don't know what to think, what he was thinking, but that I am just glad we live in a world where women can report it and men are getting the message that that's not okay to treat women that way. Yes, but I suppose your critics might say that by by drawing attention to the fact that there are degrees of sexual assault and then there are some things which are not sexual assault at all but are simply rebranded as such, they would say that you're actually denigrating uh, the experience of women who want to talk about what they've gone through. I don't see how we're helped by confusion and incoherence. There's mm -hmm. just, there's no women who are victims of violence, women who suffer sex injustice, they need truth and good, clear thinking. They're not gonna be helped by hype and spin, twisted theories. You know who's gonna be helped by that? You know, this, these, these gender studies activists in there, and it's, it supports their, their the tales they wanna tell about the world. And that can be career enhancing for them, I guess but it's not gonna solve problems. If I thought this solved problems, I mean, I might have some tolerance for it, but it's the opposite. It's actually covering up problems. Like when I was looking into the data on wife battering and, and intimate violence, I just discovered a lot of surprising things. Like people want to say, well, that's a pathology of patriarchy. Well, it turns out that in gay couples, levels of violence among lesbians and gay males are about the same as heterosexual. Uh, so it, it's a pathology of intimacy. It also turns out that women do a lot of hitting and scratching and throwing things and hurt, you know, injuring. Men are stronger and bigger. So they, if you come to blows, you're, you know, the woman is gonna be hurt, but uh, there are men, there are 
lots of men. If you ask, if you do a study, you find like surprising numbers of men who have been physically attacked by women in their lives and, and more than, than men. And because, and that includes minor, you know, slapping and, yeah. and pinching and things. So it was a complicated picture. But I talked to this one researcher who'd been a kind of pioneer trying to raise consciousness about women truly at risk from sort of, um, they were, they, these were these cold-blooded batterers who just, instead of, you know, these are men like when they would get violent with their wives, instead of their heart rate going up, you know, it went down. There was, and any woman that is with a man like that, and it's, it's usually the sort of sociopathic man and the woman, She's in mortal danger and her chances are, you know, her life expectancy, if she is with such a man and she leaves him, her life expectancy is short. And he, he calculated that there were, I don't know, I forget the number he gave, like a few thousand women right then. And he said, we have to find a way to get them. He said, but the feminists have gotten in the way. So what we needed, you know, they stipulate, there are women's groups that have now developed what they call a lethality index mm. and hopefully ra are raising awareness among police and counselors and others of a desperately dangerous situation. But that those cases are horrible and horrifying. And we read about them. We, you know, you despair, like the burning bed was a, a movie about a woman, you know, who burnt her husband to death, but you, you kind of rooted for her because of, the hideous beatings she had sustained over and over again. But people, the, the women's groups, too many of the radicals have taken that extreme tragedy and kind of held it up and tried to insinuate that it was somehow close to a norm. Yeah. It was not a norm. If you hear about people, if you really look at the data, you find that uh, there is violence, mild violence of slapping and, and, pushing and shoving in younger couples. The police will, are called, to, they're called Saturday night brawlers. The police go to the same houses. Usually there's drug, alcohol involved, and, but it's not really a manifestation of patriarchal oppression. It's just, it, it, it's qualitatively different from the case where a woman is in mortal danger. Yeah. And why can't we make these distinctions and then make some decisions that we're gonna have a program designed to save the lives of women and who are terrified and can't escape. So what you're what you're saying is this kind of feminism, which I think this is what you mean when you talk about victim feminism, is it where, where it accentuates the yeah. negative experiences as though it's the norm when it's not the norm? Um, well, it teaches women that their lives are just riddled with trauma. Right. Now, this young woman who described, you know, having to have sex with her boyfriend because he was kind of whiny and, you know, said he would be, I, don't, I forget the Exact details, but it was not what I would call an assault uh, by any means. Um, she probably thinks of herself as a survivor hmm. and refers to her trauma. So, if if this message is being put out there that women's lives are in, in, inherently and inevitably going to be uh, traumatic, does that not risk, in a sense, uh, perpetuating trauma or creating trauma where it might not be? It's the opposite of empowering. Feminism was supposed to be the fight to have equal opportunity with men, equal liberty, dignity. This is, this is a, to me, a reactionary movement. It's a betrayal of feminism. It's saying women need special protections and, and women are uh, intimate, you know, infinitely vulnerable. 
yeah. these horrible, and it's taking young women who are arguably facing a world where they have more opportunities, they have best education. There have been few women in the history of the world with more possibilities. And at that very moment, we turn around and tell them, no, the world is rigged against you. It's I, absurd. I, I, I see it all the time, but not 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 just that the the odds are stacked against you and everything's rigged, but but also that there's something inherently weak about women. I, I saw, for instance, to give you an example, the BBC over here promoted an app that was on your smartphone that would help women to speak up in meetings. It would gauge how much they'd been speaking and remind them when they hadn't been speaking enough. And it it just felt very paternalistic to me, and it didn't feel like any kind of feminism that I recognised. I don't recognise it. It's and it's patronizing or matronizing. I don't, <laughs> it's ridiculous and it has to stop, but I, I don't know how to stop it. I, I, I despair. So where are we with feminism? I, I, you know, I suppose it's gone in waves, hasn't, hasn't it? You know, the, the, they, they, they say there's four waves, aren't there? The, the suffragettes for the first wave, the 60s feminists for the second, and then the intersectionalists, which sort of kicked off in the 90s. And then this current wave, and I don't know what this is, is, is when they say fourth wave feminism, do they mean this kind of extreme form of intersectionality? Is that what they're talking about? I don't know. They, they want to call it a wave. It's to me, it's more like we're just going through a panic about about masculinity, a panic over it's a sex panic. Right. And I think that 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 unfortunately there was a lot that was legitimate in me, too. It was an authentic awakening. Mm -hmm. um, but quickly, the radicals moved in and then wanted to uh, go after men. Not not just the Harvey Weinstein's and the you know the, the the serial harassers and so forth. They wanted to go after you know a guy who made a joke in a library and a woman overheard it you know or yeah it, it, oh they they would call it intellectual harassment if a, if a man questions feminist statistics he can be in trouble. So they we've seen a lot of men sort of uh, uh, wrongly accused and punished and shamed and and excommunicated like that there was that uh shitty men's in media list that was circulated in in around and um those many of those men were either they did nothing wrong they were just fault the people just lied because these were anonymous informants just right. on this list circulating on the internet and people thought oh this is wonderful what a breakthrough no welcome to mccarthyism i mean that, yeah. that in uh, anonymous informants, you know, and, and people on some of them, some of them were uh, guilty. Most of them weren't or what they did was not worthy of punishing them. And they were punished and humiliated and shamed. And fortunately, uh, several feminists did speak out against this. Uh, but uh, I think we have to speak out more vociferously in favor of due process and basic fairness, and also some kind of proportionality in punishment. It's one thing well, if you're, hearing... no, yeah, no, go no. ahead. I, I keep hearing the phrase sexual misconduct when someone hasn't broken a law, uh, but the behavior is just looked down upon and, 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 you know, and that kind of thing. I mean, what you're describing is almost like a kind of um, anti-sex sentiment, a puritanism, I suppose. Exactly. And I think we are in a period of hyper puritanism. And I and thought the purpose of feminism in my day was to overthrow 
the sort of puritanical heritage that that viewed women as the, you know virginal and and um, that men had to kind of approach with all of this. Um, this there, there was a, a sort of protocols that of of uh, behavior, and we kind of had the sexual revolution, and women could initiate sex, and women could say they like. And suddenly, that was my generation, mm. and I, I had allies that, that agreed with me. That I still do. Kathy Young and Camille Paglia, um, Katie Royfe. We spoke out, and I think we made a difference in the first culture war in the nineties. Yeah, and we had the media behind us. So, you know, the New York Times published a Katie Royfe's piece that sort of over, you know, really cast doubt on the so-called rape culture at Princeton and Harvard and so forth. And, um, and then the, the New York Magazine, I remember there was great articles uh, questioning the uh, so-called rape apocalypse and so forth. Hmm. Well, now this time around, we don't have the media because I think the graduates from those courses with Catherine McKinnon and people informed by that, those fake statistics and that twisted philosophy, they went marching into New York Magazine and the New York Times. And we thought, well, when they get there, they'll have to, you know, they'll, they'll mend their ways. No, they didn't. And they went straight to HR and started making complaints. And they, they learned that, you know, you could weaponize your, uh, you know, your, your alleged, um, trauma or offense and um here we are yeah i mean because i remember hearing camille Pali talking about how she felt that sex positive feminism had kind of won at one point but it doesn't feel like it's won now it, it, it feels like something something new is happening um do, do you think what do, what do you think will happen to feminism now i mean and and do you still call yourself a feminist because now our people's associations with feminism is not necessarily the kind of things you've been describing to me today yeah, you know, I really don't want to give it up because I take the long view. And as a philosopher, I look back to the great voices of sex equality, of, of, of Mary Wollstonecroft and John Stuart Mill, and then going through the, the famous suffragists in, in the United States and in, in Britain. Um, it's a, it's a, one of the greatest chapters in the human quest for freedom and equality. And just because people come all around for a few decades and start twisting it around and turning it into something unrecognizable. However, it, if you ask people, this is interesting, if you look at the surveys, are you a feminist? Mm. To this day, most people say no, something like 75% say they don't use the, the, that. And they ask them why. And they, I think the number one answer is that, well, it, uh, it, it depicts something. It's, too, it's become too radical. Or because it's too negative ask, about men. If you ask people whether they believe in uh, equality of opportunity between the sexes, so you know, social it's political, not, uh, nearly a hundred percent, hundred percent, right? So why wouldn't that equate to? Because a lot of my because well, I think that they that's why I, I said who stole feminism was my first book. Mm. Someone ran off with the banner, and people <laughs> don't want to follow that banner. So we need a name for those of us who do believe. I mean, what I believe in is 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 respect between men and women, and 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 enjoying the differences when they're there. And um, I think men and women should also be able to joke about each other. It, there's a kind of now no jokes are allowed, especially God forbid a man who made a joke. But well, that's part of the puritanism, right? That's part of that. yeah. 
Oh no, there will no no fun, no sex. Even <laughs> fashions right now, uh, there's a whole. I mean, I'm sure this will change quickly because uh, women tend to be fond of men, and uh, it's not going to last to to alienate them. But there's a whole movement, you know, not to be subject to the male gaze, as if it's so bad to be looked at as an object of desire. You know, yeah, you don't want to be gog. You know, obviously there are situations where it's unpleasant, but what's happened is they've just swept aside. And so now there are fashions that are very puritanical or that's it looks I, like. That's what I mean about this, uh, this discourse around sexual objectification. It's like, well, that that's sort of built into our evolutionary history that people find other people sexually attractive. <laughs> and yeah. I don't see why, and it's built into our art. You know, uh, it, I, I don't see why that in of itself is, is a negative thing. And even I, I've looked into some feminist theory about the male gaze and even the theories about the male gaze uh, some of which came from European philosophers who are a little more sophisticated about it. Uh, they, they've developed just a more interesting, complicated theory that the person who's gazed upon is not really entirely passive and that doesn't necessarily lack power. It's, it's ridiculous to simplify something so com complicated and enjoyable to most people of this rapport between lovers um, or you know, two people who are flirting. But, you know, if I was a young man now, you don't know what the rules are. So flirtation or just, you know, I bet there are little boys, you know, heterosexual little boys who want to look at porn, uh, heterosexual porn, who want to look at a scantily clad woman or the, like a Playboy centerfold, which, I mean, men more than women are stimulated by visual <laughs> images of a desirable body part <laughs> and women it's more stories you know these bo bodice ripper novels are more on average women read them more than men but we have demonized men for their gaze and i i'm i'm worried that we've shamed little boys about their enjoyment of looking at gorgeous women and you know whatever in the in the uh, sports illustrated mm -hmm. But even the Sports Illustrated, I mean, I think they, what did I read? They were going to have, uh, well, I don't know. I won't go into it, but maybe they'll, I'm pretty sure they're going to come back to having women that are desirable to heterosexual men. But, and do, do you see any sign that this is going to change, that something's going to change here? Or do you think we are now on a kind of trajectory within feminism where it, it's just going to get increasingly uh, puritanical and increasingly difficult to push back against it because anyone who tries to as you have experienced to go back to your experience at Oberlin you are if you push back against it you are the strategy is to demonize any any dissent right I think it's going to be tough eventually I mean I have faith in human nature and this it, you know but I, we, we could be in for the long haul. Uh, I actually think of it more like prohibition is that a lot of people went along with it and it really seemed, you know, people were all worked. It really seemed like the solution. And um, now it did create opportunities for uh, fun. People worked their ways around it. I've heard even on, I forget who it was. Someone suggested college campuses should have the equivalent of speakeasies but we were not that you could go there and drink, but you could go there and tell jokes and flirt and, you know, just have these places where you could be a free human being and, you know, not have, not be policed and so forth. Uh, 
it could take a long time because it, it's it's people they've just in any any uh, work environment or education environment you're at risk of getting punished or shamed and then with and then it's leveraged through social media yeah it's on your permanent record so yeah. we have kind of realized uh you know Foucault's what is the panopticon that you know yes. society is watching and regulating maybe we did it yeah may, well maybe maybe and as you say it, it does feel as though sometimes some of the feminists of today are at war with human nature really which i'm not sure is very well, helpful i think a lot of the left is and not just in simplifying not just in having no understanding but also um not allowing for just human complexity and not allowing for well here's the thing i what really gets me is the what's crept into feminism more than ever is a is uh cruelty meanness now this may be largely a phenomenon of twitter where i see it but i see yep. these feminists just glorying over the humiliation of someone yeah um and, and not someone powerful i'm just talking about some schlemiel you know gets caught or something i don't know and they or commits some minor uh yeah. you know does something that's considered untoward and then is humiliated and savaged and sometimes you hear you know losing a job over nothing yeah and then it's there on and the internet have, forevermore yeah the, 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 and there's this philosopher called kate mann and she's she believes that we live in this misogynist you know world and she's pretty radical and she has this word empathy so we've got all this excess sympathy for men and that's a bad thing well first of all we don't have excess sympathy all the research i've seen suggests there's we were far more sympathetic to women in similar situations mm -hmm. and sympathy for men you know people put up with a lot of horrible things i mean if it were women languishing by the you know millions of women in prisons with horrible conditions people would it would be a major issue we just you know we 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 tolerate it we tolerate a lot of uh, cruel uh, treatment of boys and men that we wouldn't for women so they're overlooking that and that yeah. now glorying in uh, opportunities to um, humiliate someone and that that's yeah. troubling and i don't think all and i'm generalizing because there are still many feminists who are like me who are just just want equality and i think even among young women and that's why they say they aren't feminists they are in the in the positive sense yes. of equality feminism but they just don't have the anger and the the uh will to to wage war and most of us want our rights but we're not at war with men and we don't welcome a gender war well i think that that's a very nice way to 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 sum up really what what, what you stand for and, and the kind of feminism that you stand for and i really appreciate you coming on and talking about this today because these are difficult issues very complicated issues but uh you you've expressed your ideas so eloquently i i really appreciate it thank you very much oh my pleasure uh, you've been watching the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and Christina Hoff Summers. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do like and subscribe and join us next week when we'll have another fabulous guest. <laughs>